Heavenly Father, whether we think about the simple and childlike expressions of the story of Christmas, or whether we consider the deep mystery that is encapsulated in words like incarnation, God becoming man, or Emmanuel, God with us, who is here to dwell. We are blown away by the reality of Christmas. Father, we recognize that we cannot fully comprehend the mystery, and yet we know that when we consider its depths and its breadth, that it gives us great, great joy and adoration. Thank you that you are such a mighty God as this, that your son would come in such a fashion as this, and that we would know him, and that he would know us, and that he would seek us, and that we would be found by him, and that you would accomplish your work in and through him. And so we worship you today. Help us now as we consider the big picture of this plan. Give us greater insight and greater joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes when you take a step back and you consider the big picture of what is happening, it's in that big picture that you see a unique perspective of hope, of excitement, and ultimately of joy. I mean, think about it. Those of you with adult children, when you consider their childhood, when you consider their development, when you consider their ups and downs, their successes, and their failures, when you consider their training that has happened through the years, and you look at the person that your child has become today, the big picture, this gives you a unique sense of joy. For those of you without adult children, a different place in life maybe, one way to consider the big picture of your life is just think about the Christmases that you've experienced. Where were you on Christmas Day last year and the year before and the year before and the year before? And think about the person that you were and all that you've experienced and all that God has done in your life to bring you to the person that you are today. Big picture joy. The same can be said of any successes uh, throughout a great length of time. Stepping back, attempting to see the whole, the start, the middle, and the finish is a wonderful and even a very powerful thing. And you can't help but sit back and smile as you see the key moments of progression in any type of long-lasting success story particularly when it comes to people, people like you and people like me. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been considering this idea of Christmas joy. We've looked at joy in the simple act of believing God. We've considered joy in the coming of the King and the kingdom of God. Last night, we considered the joy in heaven that happens when each and every sinner is saved. And today, I want us to consider joy in terms of, of the big picture. It's perhaps some of the greatest joy that we see in Christmas, joy that lasts long after this season, 
is found in sitting back and looking at the grand plan of God and how uniquely this time, this incarnation of his son, the fact that God would dwell with us, the fact that he would ransom captive Israel as we've been singing this morning, where this fits in the grand plan. We could look at dozens of passages in the Bible that point us to this reality. But this morning, we are looking at another fairly non-traditional Christmas text, but it sets us up very clearly on this trajectory of God's grand plan and the joy that we see in that. So I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51, and it's found there on page 611 of your pew Bible, and we will look at portions of that text this morning. While you're turning, let me set the stage for you. Isaiah is positioned in the middle of the Old Testament, and it's divided as a book into three parts. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are prophecies from God to his people who are rebelling against him. The picture is not good, and it's not good news. Judgment is upon them. They have turned away and chosen to live in darkness. And as a result, God is prophesying to them that he will, in fact, judge them and they will go into exile into Babylon. But then in chapters 40 through 55, part two, the book takes a major turn. Here, God is speaking to his people While they're already in exile now, they've experienced terrible, horrific things. They've been shipped off to a foreign land. But rather than proclaiming ongoing judgment to them, he gives them hope. He reminds them about who he is. He tells them about the promises that he's made. And he foretells the reality of their coming salvation. In short... God lets the people into the big picture. He shows them a glimpse of the grand plan. And what we see in this part of Isaiah and much of Isaiah is really sort of three different trajectories. God prophesies and tells the people of their deliverance that will happen in the immediate future. He tells them about how some of these prophecies will be fulfilled in the coming of a future savior in the person of Jesus, trajectory number two. And thirdly, he's gonna tell them or indicate to them or just give them a little taste of how these things will be fulfilled at the end of all things. So there's an immediate fulfillment, there's an intermediate fulfillment, and there's an ultimate fulfillment that happens when Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom. And this morning... Uh, We won't go into tremendous detail of all the nuances of Isaiah 51, but I want to focus on a a few key features as we look at how Christmas fits into this grand plan of God. And the first is found in the fact that joy, true joy, comes from God's comfort. Look with me at Isaiah 51 verses 1 to 8. And remember who he's talking to people who are enslaved in exile, people who have questions about their future, people who have limited hope before them, and this is what God says. He says, listen to me, 
Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. They lift their eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like garments, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Joy will come at God's comfort. Listen to me. God starts out the prophecy. He encourages all of those who are seriously pursuing him. Half-hearted pursuits of righteousness will not do because half-hearted pursuits of righteousness are really not pursuits of righteousness. But God says, if you really want me, if you've really learned the lesson of your exile, then listen And heed these words. I will comfort you. He encourages them toward their righteous living because those who pursue godly ways are never far from discouragement. One of the greatest struggles of our human experience is this question of why do the wicked prosper or will God fulfill his promises? But here, God promises to them comfort. Look to the past, the prophet says. Remember where you came from. Remember what God has done in Abraham and Sarah. His power has been displayed throughout all of history, he reminds them. Who else has done the things that God has done? Who else creates nations? Who else builds up people? Who else rains down divine judgment? Who else restores those who are in good standing before him? The answer is no one. When our perspective is solely focused on our immediate circumstances, we lose sight of God's big picture. But know this, keeping in the pursuit of righteousness is a wonderful thing because God comforts his people. And his comfort, he says, will be like the turning of wilderness to the Garden of Eden. 
a place of desolation turned to a place of wonderful prosperity. Joy, verse 3, joy and gladness will be found in her. And thanksgiving and the voice of song. Now people in our society try all kinds of crazy ways to achieve comfort, don't they? One such way I read about recently was the founding of a new holiday called Get Over It Day. It's actually a real thing. And the premise is that letting go and moving on is difficult in life, painful things happen, bad relationships, bad decisions. We tend to revisit those moments when we were not so smart or when somebody around us wasn't so smart and the consequences were heavy. We beat ourselves up, we make mistakes, we blame others for the ways they've hurt us. But that's why Jeff Goldblatt has started what he hopes will become an international movement. Get over it day. The day falls on March 9th, which happens to be the midway point between Valentine's Day and April Fool's Day. And the idea behind Get Over It Day is simple. All of us have something, an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend or stressful school or work-related issues or fears or insecurities or embarrassing moments or bad relationships and on and on and on. And get over it day motivates people to use their sheer willpower to move on, no matter how deep the scars Goldblatt's website even sells the idea of get over it, and he provides helpful hints, like if you're not sure what you have to get over, well, just ask your friends what they're tired of hearing you complain about, and then get over it. Get over it day sounds great on paper, doesn't it? But when it comes to the most profound realities of life, whether that's hurt or pain or most importantly, sin, then we need power and healing that comes from another person, not from simply the willpower or an attempt to get over it. And so God's word of providing comfort for those in exile, those in physical exile points to the reality of God providing comfort to those in spiritual exile is no small promise. It produces joy in the life of those who seek him. He goes on in the prophecy and there's this resounding theme. He says in verse one, listen to me. And then again in verse four, give attention to me. And then in verse seven, listen to me again. And he reinforces the truth that he is for his people. He is for his nation. And this is in contrast to the nations that will receive judgment. He reinforces his eternal plans his righteous standing, and he even says in verse six and again in verse eight, my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will be forever. And he's giving them a glimpse of how that salvation, which is eternal, will come to them. The second way that 
we see God's joy in this prophecy is that joy will come from God's ransom. Verses 9 through 17, our second section of this text, but look with me just briefly at verse 11. He says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. For people in exile wondering when God is going to show up, to see a definitive proclamation that he will act, but not just that he'll act, but his actions will bring great joy is good news for the people of history. The people will return home to Zion, the holy hill, and as they do, their sin that led them into exile will be far, far removed from them, a distant memory of the past. So too, the sin that leads us into spiritual exile, when the ransom of God comes to us, is a distant memory far, far from the past. Sorrow will flee, everlasting joy will be upon their heads. And he says all of this happens because the people have been ransomed. Ransomed. A ransom is the price of release for someone who's been held captive. And if there's ever a picture of how the little history of Israel points to the big picture of redemption, this is it. If there's ever a picture of how the little plan points to God's grand plan, then this is it. Because as God's people continue to wrestle in their sin in the Old Testament, as the Old Testament era came to a close with the prophecies of Malachi, and God chose not to speak to his people in the same way for 400 years, They were in spiritual exile. Silence. Deafening silence. Spiritual exile was upon them. And that same spiritual exile is upon any of us as we consider our sinful state. We are apart from God. But the silence is broken on Christmas. As John chapter one tells us that a light came into the darkness. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all those who did receive him To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh nor of the will of any man, but born of God. The coming of Jesus breaks the exile, that is, the sinful state of humanity. 
And how does a baby in the manger do this? How does he move from this incredible, even simple, happy birthday Jesus video that we saw moments ago to breaking spiritual exile for millions upon millions of people? Well, he does this because he came with a specific purpose. Last night, we stated that purpose here in our Christmas Eve services as seeking and saving the lost. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says how he seeks and saves the lost. And the answer is the answer that's found in Isaiah 51. The answer is ransom. Ransom, a payment rendered for the release of one who's in captivity. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And he completes the ransom payment through his work on the cross. And follow the thread with me. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 2. He says, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, a payment for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so take a step back. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about lasting joy, Christmas joy, as a result of the big picture of God, his grand plan. And in Isaiah 51, God proclaims that the ransomed of the Lord shall return and everlasting joy will be upon their heads. Jesus proclaims in Mark 10 that he is the ransom. 1 Timothy 2, Paul proclaims that the ransom payment has been made. It's happened. And now consider the final reality of this ransom being completed. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 says they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and the people and nation And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When you stop and you consider from Isaiah 51 to Mark 10 to 1 Timothy 2 to Revelation chapter 5, the big arc of joy that occurs as a result of ransom, you might say it like this. Joy arrives at the Lord's coming on Christmas and joy will be completed upon his return. There's an incredible link in the Bible between the first and second comings of Jesus. Joy arrives at the coming of the Lord, and joy will be completed upon his return. That's the big picture. The salvation that you've experienced now, if you're here today and you're a Christian, that produces this ongoing sense of joy in your life, will be multiplied a millionfold upon his return. Joy comes when Jesus comes. When he comes into the earth, when he comes into your life. But joy will be completed when he comes back. That's the grand plan. Joy is found in God's comfort. 
in a way that only God can comfort. And he does this ultimately through a savior. Joy is found in ransom as the savior is the one who makes the payment. And there's this wonderful connection between his first and second coming. Joy arrives at the Lord's coming and is completed upon his return. And so we wait. But we wait in joy. You know, I love the images and the videos that are circulating this time of year, almost every year now, of soldiers who come home at Christmas and then surprise their family. You've seen those pictures. I mean, those pictures make tough guys cry, right? And to see the expression on a wife's face or a kid's face as daddy returns home or as mommy returns home, unexpected, not knowing that they were coming. I mean, they had joy in that relationship that had been forming and growing over years. They loved each other. They even had a sense of joy in their relationship while the servicemen were deployed abroad. It was hard, but they loved each other and there was joy. But when he returns home, their joy is made complete. And that's why those videos are so powerful in their nature. That is just a glimpse. It's just a taste. It's just a picture of the type of joy that you and I have at the coming of Jesus, at the growing of our life and relationship with Jesus, and at the ultimate return of Jesus. And so we wait. We wait for his return. Joy arrives in the Lord's coming. And joy will be complete in his return. And we think about that and we celebrate that at Christmas. And we look forward to that future reality. Let's pray together and praise God as we continue. Father, we thank you that you give us lasting joy and simple belief. We thank you that you give us Christmas joy in the coming of the kingdom. We are marveling and in awe at the fact that heaven, all of eternity, experiences joy when sinners are saved. And God, we thank you for the joy at the coming of Jesus. And we look forward to the completion of that joy. I pray for each person here that regardless of the difficulties of life, that you would help us to see and to know and to walk in the grand plan of God as one's moving from spiritual exile to returning in joy and singing to the house of the Lord and waiting for the hope of his return. We praise you and we worship you. Amen.